The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, and she's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. You may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, and lots of other shows. So to learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Hi, Murray. How are you doing? We have a very great guest here tonight, and this is someone who we have to have back at least once a year. This is a woman who was and continues to be a mentor for me in privacy, and I think she walks on water, and she is really incredible in terms of really knowing and having a good handle on privacy and one of the very pioneers in privacy. So let me tell you about Beth Givens. She is the director and founder of the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse in San Diego, California. It's a nonprofit advocacy, research, and consumer education program. It was established in 1992 with funding from the California Public Utilities Commission's Telecommunications Education Trust, and it is an independent program of the Utility Consumers Action Network, which is also a nonprofit organization that advocates for consumers' interests regarding telecommunications, energy, and the Internet. The Privacy Rights Clearinghouse maintains a complaint and information hotline on informational privacy issues, and it is the only one of its kind in the country. It publishes a series of guides on informational privacy issues and such topics of internet privacy, healthcare privacy, wireless communications, credit reporting, identity theft, workplace privacy, and on and on. Beth frequently speaks and conducts workshops on the issue of privacy. She's participated in many media interviews. You've probably seen her on TV many times. She's been on NewsHour with Jim Lehrer on PBS, CBS News, CNN, 60 Minutes, 48 Hours, Good Morning America, Court TV, NBC Evening News, CBS Weekend News, and many, many more. She has testified herself on privacy and public policy concerns before the U.S. Senate, the California Legislature, the California Public Utilities Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, and the U.S. Controller of the Currency, and many more. In addition, Beth has been a member of several task forces examining privacy-related public policy issues, and she is an advisor to the Office of Privacy Protection here in California, Trustee Wireless Privacy Committee, the Justice Management Institute's Electronic Court Records Advisory Committee, the Task Force on Criminal Records Identity Theft. I could go on and on and on. She's got so many of them, but they are all up on our website. And she is also an author. She has authored many 
different articles and she authors all of the fact sheets. She co-authors the fact sheets and she's the editor of the fact sheets on the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse website. She also co-authored with me. I was so honored to be a co-author with her on Privacy Piracy, A Guide to Protecting Yourself from Identity Theft. And she's also the author of the Privacy Rights Handbook, How to Take Control of Your Personal Information, and many, many more portions of other books. As you know, I think she walks on water. She's wonderful. Thank you, Beth, for giving us the time today oh, to talk again. Thanks, Mari. Well, actually, I'm from Minnesota, so the water's frozen. I just want you to know that. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder you walk on water. Yeah. You learn to do that and avoid all the holes. Uh-huh. That's right. <laughs> I remember walking in the water in Madison, Wisconsin, when Lake Mendota would freeze over and we'd walk out there. I don't know. We were nuts, though. It was crazy. And it was windy, too, I'll bet. <laughs> it was. It was. 40 below zero. And you're used to that, too. Absolutely. That's why you and I were smart moving to California. <laughs> <laughs> well, you want to tell us more about how you really got started in privacy? Yeah, back in uh, 1991, 92, privacy really wasn't uh, the hot-button issue that it is today. In fact, identity theft wasn't even the big issue that it was at that time. But there was a fund of grant money made available by the California Public Utilities Commission. It's no longer available, but it's called the Telecommunications Education Trust. And at that time, they were funding groups, small and large, all over California to reach out with consumer education campaigns about what's happening with technology, how is it affecting consumers, and how can you be a more knowledgeable consumer, especially reaching out to those who who don't speak English as a first language. We applied for funding at that time. I was at the University of San Diego School of Law at that time in the Center for Public Interest Law, even though I'm I'm not an attorney. And we were sitting around brainstorming, and one of the individuals, not myself, said, you know, I think the next big consumer issue is going to be privacy. And we, we jumped on that and said, you know what, I think you're right. Nobody's doing any work in privacy protection. Uh, so we um, applied for the grant funding. We were funded, and we opened our doors in November of 92. And it really wasn't long after that that the identity theft issue really took off. So by 94 and 95, we were doing work in that area. Uh, I think we were probably the only ones doing work at that time. We hired law students to be on our hotline. We had a telephone hotline with an 800 number. We did not have a website. Uh, If you probably remember, um, websites didn't become more commonly uh, available until about 1996 and after, maybe about a decade ago. So once we got our um, website up and running, which was 96, 97, we kind of instantly became a, a national organization and not necessarily just a California organization. When you're on the net, you know, you're available to everyone. And so we expanded our focus at that time to go beyond California and its particular laws and regulations. And, and the guides on our website now are, are more of a, a, a national scope. So that's how we got started. It was really uh, somebody's bright idea back in 1991, I believe, or, or early 92. And, and we uh, took off and ran with it. And we're, um, we're fortunately, we're, we're still working at it uh, 16 years later. 
It's amazing. And I remember your website because, as you remember how we met, is uh-huh. you were really the, the one savior in my life at that time when I became a victim of identity theft and I went online. And yours was really the only website that I could find that had anything about identity theft. Remember well, that? I do remember it. Actually, I remember the call. It was 1996, uh, if I remember right. Yes, yes. And that was before the Federal Trade Commission developed its own identity theft clearinghouse. Way they, before, yes. Way before. Theirs came about in 1999. Yes. So thankfully now there's just a lot more information for victims. But I think, if I remember right, you told me you stayed up all night surfing the Internet, and then you found us, and then yes. you called the very next day. And and that was a great opportunity for me to learn from you and also, you know, to become friends for so many years. Yeah. It's, can you believe it? Since 1996, it's been a long, long time. Yeah. We've come a long way, baby, right? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and you've done so much, and you're, you know your books are terrific, pulling all that information together. So, uh, and, and you Pat, were and you were the best PR person I ever had. When people wanted to talk to a victim and they called you, you would just give them to me. And again, all the mentoring and all the teaching that you've done for me, and for so many other people, Linda Foley of the private, of the Identity Theft Resource Center, and so many other people. I, you're really uh, the mother of privacy for us. Oh, dear. Okay, she, I'm not mother, <laughs> sister. I'll say, sister, right. actually, actually, okay, Beth, we know. I'm older than you, so you're my, my little sister. <laughs> All right. But, uh, you know, it's, it's actually it's never a dull moment. I, um, before I, I worked in this field, I, I was a librarian, which I, I absolutely loved being a librarian. But in this field, I've found there are always new issues, always something new happening. Just read the daily newspaper, and there's another privacy or identity theft or computer security issue that, that's at least on the business page, and uh, it's, it's been fascinating. It is. So why don't we get started on that? Data breaches are the biggest thing around. What are we up to, like, you know, over 227 or something? A million. A million uh, different uh, data profiles have been stolen, right? So let's yes. talk about that. Well, yeah, a few years ago, um, well, it was 2005, Early in the year, there, there was a flurry of, of data breaches that were big news. Before then, it really wasn't a big news item. I bet you, you might remember the Choice Point security yes, breach. Was, yeah, that was the February 2005. That was the first real big one that was It really was. And, of course, that's a, an information broker, a, a kind of an industry that, we, that people really weren't familiar with back then. I, I think that the Choice Point breach educated a lot of people about this this industry, this relatively unknown industry that collects tens and twenty billions of pieces of data on on individuals, and then sells it. And people um, don't realize that whether they know who who Choice Point or Sizen or LexisNexis, whether you know it or not, you're in those databases, and you're you are some, somebody can make a profile about you. They can, and especially if you own property, you know, the, a, a lot of the um, data in these databases comes from government records that are considered to be public records. And, of course, your real estate holdings are considered public record. Right. And, and you know, for good reason. Uh, it's, it's the tax assessor's office, and the reason they're public is so that you know that, um, let's say, that the cousin of the tax assessor is being given a uh, fair shake on taxes and, and isn't getting a good deal. Also, that so you can compare homes of similar value. And you know that your own home is um, adequately assessed for taxation. So, I mean, there are good reasons behind the fact that many government records are public. But in the age of the Internet and, and, you know, powerful computers, it means that all this data can be combined. 
And that's where it gets uh, a little scary in terms of privacy and identity theft. So let's talk about those breaches. Your website has a wonderful chronology of the breaches. It's just amazing to see what's up there at privacyrights.org. Right on the right on the homepage, you can click on that. So let's talk about the kinds of breaches that you cover. Yes. Well, we cover, first off, we get the information about the breaches mostly from news sources. Sometimes an individual will send us in the mail, in fact, I just got one today, notice of a breach that they've received that actually hasn't made the news. And we will add them, too. But it has to be from a bona fide news source or from, as in the case of the mail that I got today, uh, an actual um, letter or notice that somebody receives who who has been uh, affected by a breach. So with with those uh, criteria, we will then put a summary of each breach and the number of records affected. So, for example, uh, just a recent one, the Walter Reed Army Medical Center. I'm sure most people have heard of Walter Reed. It's yes. a, considered to be a, a, a wonderful institution, but they had a breach affecting a thousand um, records of, of their patients both in the Walter Reed Center and other military hospitals. And unfortunately, uh, for good or for bad, the um, medical institutions use our Social Security numbers as part of, of our data, our health care data. And uh, you know what happens when a Social Security number is exposed and gets into the hands of the wrong person. It could lead to identity theft. Exactly. And I think that's basically what's behind the law that way back in, well, it was 2003, I yes, believe, the California law, the first in the nation, requiring that individuals be notified when there's a breach of a particular kind of data. And it's certainly not a breach of, you know, your, your eye color and, and, and the size of suit you wear, but it's information that could be useful to an identity thief in opening up new credit in your name, impersonating you in the marketplace, impersonating you in, say, uh, med- medical care institutions. So what kind of information is that? It's your Social Security number. It's your financial account numbers like your credit card account number, your bank account number, your driver's license number, and then just recently added uh, medical information about you. So if, if, if that sort of information has been compromised, then um, you deserve, and, and the law requires that you be told about it. So you unless, can take, unless it's encrypted. Unless, unless it's encrypted, uh, yes. that's right. Yeah, good point. So uh, we started our breach listing in 2005, just two, two years after the law was passed, and uh, it was at a time when there were just a, a flurry of breaches occurring all at one time. I mentioned ChoicePoint. You also mentioned LexisNexis and Sizent. Right. Um, so it, it was kind of a, a daily news event Citibank, remember, it was 4.1. Yeah, Citibank was a big Bank one. Bank of yeah. America had 1.5 million, and those were all oh, public yeah. employees. Remember that? Yeah, absolutely. And we so recently we just, even heard about, what, the Bank of New York and Mellon, which was, yes. what, over 4 million Yes, customers? 4 million, Absolutely. Well, and, and so it all started in California, like so many good consumer protection ideas. Um, That's because you're here. <laughs> I, I don't know about that. Actually, Cal- it goes way back to the 70s that the California legislature is a, an activist, activist legislature when it comes to consumer protection. So it's a strong California legislative tradition. Did and you I know that prob- also, Beth, we're one of only, I think it's four states, is it, that has uh, privacy as part of our state constitution? Oh, you know, that's right. Yeah. And it's I think very, that's why, too. It's very strong. That's right. Most... Um, constitutional privacy provisions only deal with the individual's relationship to their government. California's is different because it encompasses not only 
the government and personal privacy, but also the private sector, the commercial sector. Yeah. So that I think our our constitutional right to privacy is is considered really to be among the the most protective in the country, if not the most. And it's certainly in terms of personal information, stronger than the U.S. Constitution. Absolutely it is. So I think that's part of it, too. We've got this mindset that privacy, all the way from the top, privacy is important. That's right. Yeah. So when we're talking about these breaches, I know that you've had some studies on your website about how certain types of breaches, like, for example, universities and schools Mm -hmm. have more breaches than many other of the more than banks for example yes uh-huh and so tell us more about these breaches what are what are some of the um one thing i want to go back about this also even though you have all the publicly reported breaches remember in the law i think that they only have to put something in the newspaper if there's over two hundred fifty thousand people who are affected or um, yes Otherwise, I know people who show me their letters from small businesses like doctor's offices. That's right. And accountant's offices. So the the amount of breach, breached records that you have on your website really isn't all of them, is it? No, I don't think it comes even close. You're right. We're showing about 227 million records exposed. But as you as you go down, and I tell people, scroll down to the bottom and then and then move yourself up, um, you'll see that for a lot of the breaches, the number of records is unknown. Right. In fact, many of them, um, they, the, the entity doesn't know how many, or my feeling is many of them don't really want to reveal. Exactly. So I think for maybe, maybe a third, maybe a quarter of all the breaches, it's unknown. So I would take that $227 million, and frank, frankly, I would double it. Maybe that's a little bit too much, but um, I, I think that it really is a small number compared to um, the, the total. And plus, it's, it's not a federal law, it's a state law. And what do we have, about 37 states now that have security breach legislation? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, California, the California law started a wave, I think, advancing across the country. Yes. I think it may be even 30, is it 39 states. Oh, it could be 39 now, yeah. But, you know, actually, because of the California law and the fact that all of these other states have adopted similar laws, it's now the best practice. I mean, many companies, universities, um, organizations in states where there is no law will give notice to the affected individuals, even though they don't have to. It really has become the best practice. And you know, if they didn't give notice, and then it became publicly known, they would have a black eye, a public relations black eye, a a terrible situation on their hands for trying to keep it a secret. Exactly. Remember, that's what happened with Choice Point. Choice Point first only notified the California citizens, and then all the attorney generals in those other states got Mm -hmm. really mad and said, you better tell us about our victims as well of this breach. That's right. And so you're right. It would be a terrible public relations disaster. So better, better to err on the side of telling people because yes. otherwise it's it's going to be worse. Yes, so, absolutely. So what uh, another th- good okay, Oh, go, go ahead, Mark. No, 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 go ahead. I was going to say another good thing that has happened I think because of this uh the notice requirement. I know for one Choice Point has basically re- recreated itself in terms of its privacy and security practices and I have a feeling that many if not most of these other companies and organizations that that have had uh breaches that have been publicly exposed have probably done the same thing. Right. I think they've stepped up to the plate and, you know, even hiring a privacy officer. Although now they are part of LexisNexis, right? They, yes, they, they are. They were acquired. So 
hopefully LexisNexis will will also start taking greater notice of of the privacy. I I don't know if they have the same uh, intent as ChoicePoint, but you know, with Carol DeBatiste, who was the privacy officer, we saw some very good changes with ChoicePoint. Yes, that's right. And ChoicePoint, I think, became a a company that developed what I call a culture of privacy. Yes. And and where everybody is super aware of the importance of protecting personally identifiable information. And, of course, it's because of their, the public relations black eye that they experienced. I think and, we of should, course, they were, yeah. they were fined as well. Yes, $15 million. Yes. So I think another thing we should tell people right now as they're listening is that at choicetrust.com, which was part of ChoicePoint, they can get their disclosures, their annual disclosures of their clue report, which is their insurance report, and they can also get a um, their work history to see if anybody's working under their name. That's right. And they can also get a free public record search. Right. Yeah, so that's important. If you go to choicetrust.com, it's really important because you can get that for free once a year. That's right. Now, talk to us about the breaches. Now, some people say they should be worried if they get it. Some people say they shouldn't worry about it. What do you think about that? Well, uh- Take a look when you get the letter, and, and I'll bet you if we could see all of your listeners and ask them to raise their hands, how many have received the yeah. security breach notice letter, we would have a lot of hands going up. I know I, I have um, I've received one security breach notice letter myself. But yes. um, actually, could you repeat the question, Murray? I yeah, think I just, just went saying, off on a tangent. No, no, that's okay. No, you're right. Um, I'm saying should people really be worried? And, and, you know, I wanted to know your position on that. I think it's something that they should take serious, don't you? Yes. My feeling is we should all basically assume that our personal information is at risk all the time. There's just so, there are so many opportunities for our social security number, our date of birth, our driver's license number, our bank account number, the credit card number, to get into the hands of somebody who may not be honest. Right. Um, and it might be through insider theft, insider crime, or it might be through... Uh, trash that's not properly disposed or, or, or mail theft. I know the methamphetamine epidemic is fueling a lot of identity theft right. through mail theft. Um, so I, I think, the, I hate to say it, it's bad news, but I think the assumption should be of everyone, your personal information is at risk all of the time. And, of course, that's why we give the tips that we do. Well, given that, what should we do? Of course, the big thing is check your credit report once a year. It's free. Right. And there are three credit bureaus, and you can space them out every four months and operate your own uh, free-of-charge credit monitoring system by ordering one every four months. Right. That's and just one thing you can do. Let's give them the website again, too. Oh, yeah. It's www.annualcreditreport.com. Right, right. Now, you know, when you were talking about... Uh, Dirty insiders and unscrupulous employees. Mm-hmm. I just did a program with a DA here in Orange County, and they believe that 60 to 70 percent of the identity theft really initiates in the workplace from dirty employees. That's a big number. It uh, is a big number. Yep, and, and it it could very well be. We we just don't have the data that we need um, to be able to track that. I like the idea that. Um, uh, somebody up in the law school at University of California, Berkeley, has proposed Chris Hoofnagel, and you've yes. probably had him on your show as well. Yes, yes. But he proposes that it be a requirement in law that, that uh, breaches be reported to a central authority. 
Well, now in California, right, did our legislation pass that not only if you have a breach in California, you also have to notify the Office of Privacy Protection, isn't that? Yes, yes. yes. And I think that's a good idea. Yes, it is a good idea. Several other states have it. I believe New Hampshire does. I believe New York does. And so, you know, there's a growing body of data. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And getting back to um, these security breaches, I think when when we talk about should people be worried or not, when mm-hmm. I've gotten those letters myself, Beth, you know, and from my bank and from others. And I think what happens is so many of us feel like impotent. Like, what mm-hmm. can we do? We have no idea when, when our doctor's office, our dentist's office, schools that we've gone to, mm-hmm. uh, our banks, our credit card companies, our investment, everybody has our sensitive information. And we, how do we... How can we do something to really protect ourselves besides the credit reports? Well, there are a number of things you can do, although it will not entirely solve the problem for you. But you can certainly check your monthly account statements from your your bank and your credit cards um, to see if there are any uh, expenses, any any uh, charges that are not yours. Um, you can, when you put your mail out, or I should should say, you don't put your mail out right. uh, with a what I used to do with a, 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 a what a a clip, uh, what you know the the, the clothes hanger clip, right? You know, attached to the uh, the mailbox. Don't put your mail out to be picked up by the mail carrier uh, because you've probably got personal checks in there. You've got your credit card account statement in there, and those are the magic numbers that thieves want. And mail theft, unfortunately, is one of the ways that thieves obtain the information they need. Um, in the workplace, you can, if you're in management, in any form of management, you can try to uh, work towards a, a culture of privacy within the workplace, adopting policies and practices that uh, make sure that your customer data and the employee data are secured within the workplace. And there's a lot that can be done within the workplace. I mean, a great deal can be done there. Let's talk about some of those because, you know, we're we're here on the campus at UCI, but a lot of people drive by and are listening to us that are business owners right here in, in Irvine and Newport Beach and Laguna. And mm-hmm. so I think it's important that we talk about some of the steps, the responsible information handling steps. Can we go through some of those? Yeah, sure. One of my favorites is... Um, building document destruction into the office infrastructure. It's not enough these days just to have one shredder, you know, out by the, the, the trash cans and the loading dock. Um, it's, it's actually a good idea to have smaller shredders around, you know, around the office in several places, yes. next to the photocopy machine, next to the fax machine, um, and other places where there's a high volume of, of the handling of documents and papers with personal information on them. I mean, it's important to have locking file cabinets and to actually lock them and and secure that key. Um, If you are working on a computer screen where you are looking at sensitive personal information, make sure that there's a a screensaver so that when you walk away within five seconds or so, your screen, and it's got to be a password-activated screensaver, your screen goes black. Right. And and no one uh, walking by can see what you've been working on, and only you can reactivate it. I know it, th- those sorts of things sometimes drive people crazy, but it's an important uh, protection. You don't want your workplace to be the generator of um, identity theft uh, victims. Um, you know, there's a lot yeah, of other. You could things. have some liability for that too. If, you could. If, yes, if if someone becomes a victim of identity theft and and it's because one of your employees used it or sold it or whatever, 
you could be sued yourself for that. Well, you could, and, and actually a San, San Diego company was sued. Yes, yes, and, remember that. <laughs> yeah, yep. and that was, that, uh, there has been other companies that have been sued for that as well. You know, it was interesting, there was a big case that was solved here in Orange County, Beth, and one of the, the big identity thieves had been working at Ditech.com. Mm. You know, so they were, you know, that was the one that did some, like, loans, remember? So they yes. had access to all of the loan applications, which you know has everything in the world that you could need. A treasure trove, yeah. Treasure trove, right. So, yeah, so you've talked about shredding. You've talked about offline stuff. And, of course... Well, regular staff training. Yes. And, and anybody who handles personal information, and you need to include your temporary employees as well as your full-time and your vendors and contractors. And how about these outsourcing? I mean, this drives me nuts. When I Today, I was just talking to somebody. I don't know what country it was. They could hardly understand me. <laughs> and oh. I was you know, I was disputing something on my, on my credit card bill. And um, I swear, it, I, it, it really drove me nuts. And the same thing with my secretary was trying to talk to Office Depot. And again, all this outsourcing, and they have our sensitive information, too. What about that? Well, it's, we don't have a lot of control over a lot of that, I will right. say. But um, I, I know an individual who, who is in business. He's a, uh, an employment background screener. He actually went to India on his own dime to visit some of the companies that uh, engage in this outsourcing work, especially for background checks. And uh, the good ones will actually have probably better security practices than most companies here in the U.S., but many of them go so far as to not allow you to wear clothing that has pockets, for example. Oh, good. So, and you can't, you know, you can't have, uh, they work with computers that have absolutely no no ability to, to uh, put a thumb drive into it or to, to you know, insert a CD um, and take data out of it. So the, the good ones have actual, have quite strong um, protections in place. Yeah, that, but again, we should have that here. <laughs> absolutely. But it's interesting. I mean, there's a, a case that was actually comes right out of Orange County, and that's the, the Orange County Court, Superior Court, uh, outsourcing its parking ticket processing to a company, I believe, in Mexico. And well, that got, right. into the, it got into the news, and it became a big uh, controversy in Orange County. As a result, the uh, California Administrative Office of the Courts, based up in San Francisco, has convened a task force to come up with a policy about the whole outsourcing question. And I, I'm on it uh, as kind of a consumer representative, and we had our first meeting last week. So in, in the next uh, six, eight months, I think we'll be coming up with, maybe in next year, a, a policy just for the courts alone. And, and think of the, the data that they might be dealing with, especially like parking ticket data. Right. And, and that parking ticket data could, well, might have your birth date on it, right? Yes. It, and uh -huh. I, don't, I don't remember. I haven't got, thank goodness, knock on wood, I thank haven't goodness, gotten a, right. <laughs> a parking ticket <laughs> or, or a speeding ticket in a really long time. So that's why I'm knocking on wood. But I'm just trying to think, what kind of stuff goes on there? Probably your, your name, your address, your phone number, right? Well, I suppose, it, and then how you paid it off. Right. So that could so have your credit card number, which is might, what I would uh -huh. do. Yeah. They might, yeah. So... Yeah, that that stuff worries me, but I, I get more worried about banks outsourcing. Yeah, and and I'm sure they're probably the better companies in terms of of having the the security. Yes, yeah, so again, they would really have to they'd pay through the nose in terms of a public relations disaster. Right. But if you take a look at our our listing, um, it's kind of amazing all the variety of 
companies, universities, um, hospitals, government agencies. Yes, hospitals. Um, Look at the VA breaches. Remember the, me? the VA. Remember that the that VA was a huge twenty-six one. million. Twenty-six a- million. Yeah, and the IRS. Remember Absolutely. the IRS and Social Security Administration. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we're seeing those. Uh, it, it's it's really almost to the point where you think it's not one. You know, if it's going to happen to me, it's when it's going to happen, or how many more times it's going to happen yeah. to me. And that's why I think consumers just feel like you know it's totally beyond their control. Well, in, I hate to say it, in some respects it is, but a yes. lot of the people who are listening may also be in a uh, position within the workplace to do something about it. Right, right. And one of the things that I think it's every workplace needs to have, no matter how big or small, and whether or not they're a company or a nonprofit or a government agency or a university, but they need to develop a crisis management plan um, ahead of time. Not when the crisis happens, but yes. ahead of time. And uh, to deal with uh, any kinds of breaches like this, and, you know, even to the point of where they write the letter ahead of time, the, the letter that they send out to the affected individuals, leaving just, you know, fill in the blanks for the details. But if you can, if you can send out, let people know what, it, what has happened very, very quickly, uh, tell them what they need to do, give them the key points without revealing too much. And let them know what was actually stolen. Like exactly. If, if I know my Social Security number is stolen, I'm going to be more worried than if I just know that maybe my birth date and my name was stolen. Well, that's right. The one that I was involved in, um, I'm sure, along with millions of people, but it was Hotels.com. Right, right. Uh, and so that would have been my existing credit card account number and only my existing credit card account number. It didn't really bother me that much, although it was a pain in the neck to recover, but my credit card then was canceled by my credit union. Oh, and they I automatically a- did it without you doing it? Without- yes, they did. Oh. And so I had to, yeah. It, it, did they actually, tell you first, though, Beth? Oh, yes. Oh, oh they okay. absolutely did. Oh, good, good. But then I, ha- I was, of course, making several automatic payments with my oh. credit card, which I still do. It. It's something yeah. I recommend. Right. So I had to contact all of those accounts, that my, my local newspaper, for example, and say, I've got a new account number. Um, and I missed a couple. Right. And so I, then I got these, you know, nasty little <laughs> notes. You, you, yeah. you, are, you haven't paid such and such. And I realized, oh, dear, I forgot that one. Yes. But uh, if it's just an existing, you know, a single account, a credit card account, you can deal with that by, by closing the account and getting another one. And people but aren't, aren't going to become a victim of a total identity takeover from no. that. And, and that is, and you're never going to be held responsible for any of the charges as long as you tell them within 60 days. That's even correct. 90 days, actually, I've found that people, even after 90 or 120 really? days, yes, on a credit card, not on a debit card. Not and a you debit know, card. You and I know about debit cards, so I'm going to have you tell it, but I've told them many times that why we hate debit cards. Yeah, we recommend that people do not use debit cards, period, end of story. I mean, as you know, and as your listeners know, you're taking money directly out of your checking account. Um, with with a credit card, you're paying at the end of the month. It's a 30-day loan, essentially. Yes, and, and you, you get to see what's being charged first. You I mean. absolutely do. But with a debit card, that money is leaving your account just as soon as the transaction is finalized, usually. And uh, your your account can be wiped out. I, I know, talked to a man in a Midwest state, and he and his fa- fiance were going to get married, and they she was living uh, in his home, and they decided not to, and she was very angry, and so she decided to get even. You know these convenience checks that yes. credit 
hate credit those. card companies. I hate them too. But you get a a, a letter and attached with two or three checks that can be activated immediately. She stole his mail. I mean, she was in a great position to do so since she was living there. Right. And she uh, spent, get this, a hundred thousand dollars of oh his. Oh my god. She bought a fancy uh, sports car. And, uh, you know, basically, she, she wiped him clean. Mm. Now, I haven't talked with him lately, so I don't know what's going on if he got it back. But uh, the, 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 the bank, which is a major national bank, uh, was making him responsible because they claim, well, she was in your home, she was your fiancé, you're responsible. <laughs> and, of course, think about that for a moment. Yeah. You know, what can you do if somebody gets to the mail before you do? Right, right. And and at that point, if he, you know, made a police report and he's willing to really stand up for himself, you know, and that police report should should uh, suffice along with his affidavit for them to say, hey, no, you're an identity theft victim, and they should not be charging him. You know, it should, and I, I'm assuming he hired an attorney for himself. But, um, you know, if, if it's a, a relative or a family member, that who is the perpetrator, some of these companies will really play hardball with you. Yes. They'll say, you are responsible. Right, right. That's why, you know, we I deal with this a lot. It's very sad. I just had a call today, Beth, from mm. a woman who told me that her twin sister did it to her. Oh. I know. You know, how, how devastating to have your twin sister. And she finally, and she did it to her twice already. So she actually did do a police report, and she said, yeah. you know, I said, you know, you're going to have to do this. You know, if she isn't willing to come forward and tell the companies that she indeed did this to you and, and she's willing to take over those accounts, then you're going to have to go to the police and you're going to have to follow through because you shouldn't be responsible for the thousands of dollars that she charged. It's just That's not right. fair. And, you know, there are many families um, or family members who don't want to report their sister, brother, their cousin, their husband, or whatever, to father, the um, yeah. yeah, their father to the police. I, I remember a really sad case of a of a man, um, whose cousin repeatedly committed identity theft on his identity, and the family ties were so strong that he never reported him to the police, and it kept happening. And I said, "You have to." He says, "Beth, you don't understand my family. We just don't do that to each other." Well, I said, well, look what he did to you. <laughs> exactly. God. <laughs> oh, and, uh, poor thing. He, I know. And then they end up getting having to pay. And then, of course, that yeah. ruins their credit and everything else. He wanted to buy a house. He was a young man just kind of getting out in the world. And he, he just couldn't. He had such a bad credit report. I had a guy who just called me this year whose father did it to him. Mm. And um, his father was renting his house. And so what his father did was he got credit in his son's name and then was paying his son the rent with the money that he took. Oh, no. Yeah, and so um, when when the son found this out, he felt terrible. He said, I always respected my father. I loved him. I can't believe this. And I said, and not only that, I said, you reap the benefit of it. So mm. you're going to have to pay it because, in, in essence, he gave you back the money, and it's going to look like it's a conspiracy. Yes. And so it was, It was because he wasn't going to go to the police, and he just, you know, I told him, you have to sit down and confront your father and talk with him about it. And it was, he was crying to me on the phone. Oh, my heart just went out to him, because those are, those are pathetic. But, those are. But, you know, the Javelin study is, comes up with these huge numbers that it's, you know, so much of this is, uh, is uh, family members' is identity theft. And we know different, don't we, Beth? We do. I, this is a case. I've got a book on my bookshelf uh, with the title of Lies, Damn Lies, and Statistics. And I think that the title is all telling. Uh, 
the statistics can be used to um, for good and for bad. You know, you, you can basically twist a number to make whatever case you want to make. And, and with the uh, statistics that have come out on identity theft and who does it, that's certainly been the case. I've re- read and heard that 50% of all identity theft comes from family members, uh, friends, or, or people who you are closely associated with. But that's not quite the case. Um, it really, it's that, let's see, what only 40% of individuals, no, I think it's only 40% know um, how it was done. And right, only, they learn how it was done, That's right? right, and only 30% know who did it. Right. And so the full sentence should be, of those who know who committed identity theft, for 50% of those, it's uh, somebody close to you, like a family member or a friend. So you, you do the math. 30% right, right. times 50%, and that's 15%. So, And then, you know, the Federal Trade Commission, the 2007 report by the Federal Trade Commission last year, they did one, and they saw that 12% knew who did it, was, was actually associated with the person, and only 6% of the 12% was family members. The rest were a roommate or a fellow employee. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that... Unfortunately, Javelin uh, does studies for big banks. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen, and you and I have talked about this before, is that they the banks want to blame it on the victim quite a bit of the time so that they don't have to really step up to the plate yeah. for all the problems and the negligence that they do in even issuing credit to a fraudster. That's right. And, and of course, we know that given the ease of obtaining credit in this country, the standards for that that banks and credit card companies use to make a decision on who to extend credit to are are really not all that stringent. No, and I just want to introduce you again as people are going by and listening to this incredible expert and our my very favorite mentor for privacy, and that is Beth Givens, who is the director of the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse in San Diego, and her website has a tremendous amount of information. You can get her newsletter, and et cetera, at privacyrights.org. Beth, let's go back to that because the good news is finally, finally, um, in January this year, we have the, um, you know, the red flag rules from the Fair and Accurate Credit Transactions Act came yes. into being. And all banks and financial institutions that issue credit have to be compliant and have an identity theft prevention plan in writing by November 1st. And that's good news. Uh, yes. We'll want to keep track of that November 1st benchmark. But, you know, there's there's some telltale clues. I mean, one is if a credit application, uh, if the address is different than the address uh, in the credit report, that might be an indicator of a thief at work. It is. And that's exactly what happened to me, Beth, remember? I mean, that's right. uh, I had no idea uh, this, a woman, you know, in Ventura uh, goes and gets my name and social security number, and then she applies for credit up there. And you would think when that Bank of New York, Delaware, which was the first bank that issued credit, you would think when they saw an application that had an address that was different from the address in my credit report that they would have said, hmm, this is interesting. I wonder what, when, you know, she's paying her mortgage mm-hmm. at that house. She's got <laughs> all of her utilities and everything else are going there. Uh, she has other bills going to that address. What in the world is this all about? But they didn't. And they, to this day, they don't do anything about that most of the time. I know. And, and that's an example of a red flag. Yes, and yes. it's it's a 
it's about as obvious as it gets in my mind. But, you know, the there are thousands and thousands of credit accounts that are issued every hour by the, the major financial institutions, and it's done in an automated way. Yeah, so, so you don't have these humans looking at that or, no. not, or not spending much time, or maybe it's just the outsourced people who are looking at it and they don't understand enough about these red flags. I, You know, it, it, it boggles the mind, it really does, because it, it, it seems as though it is so obvious. I, I was at a, um, oh, I, I attended a lecture on identity theft with the Identity Theft Resource Center, and I met a young woman, a first-grade teacher, who was just having the worst case of identity theft she was having to deal with. She told me that on her credit report it showed that she owned six homes. <laughs> and this is a first-grade teacher, mind you, and she was just not all that far out of college. You know, she was maybe 26, 27 years old. Oh she owned six homes. Well, of course that was ridiculous, but that's uh, what was allowed to happen in her name. Unbelievable. Yeah. But, you know, that, that they're not looking at it. Like you said, they're really not looking at it. I had looked at the 26 red flags that they have, you know, for the compliance. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the one that you just talked about is change of address is, is a huge one. But there's so many others. And, and one of the things that we're seeing a lot of, and you're probably hearing about this too, Beth, is there is so much getting back to the debit card and mm-hmm. electronic funds transfer. You know, the Federal Trade Commission says that the largest amount of bank fraud is electronic funds transfer. And we're seeing so many of these checks. Let's talk about how dangerous checks are. Yes. I've, uh, yeah, checks are unfortunately all too easy to counterfeit. Um, also, you can use a standard household uh, chemical, and I won't say which one, but to wash uh, the... Uh, the name of the recipient, yes, yeah. exactly, and the dollar amount, and then write it back on and, and increase the dollar amount, and then, you know, it's an easy way to, to make some easy money. Exactly. Yeah, I, I've converted um, most, of, in fact, I think at this point almost all of my accounts to automatic payment so that I don't have these any checks going through the mail. Yes, it's actually the safest thing to do is to use a credit card yes, to, to pay your checks, uh, to pay all your bills. And if there's a, you know, we do online banking only because I want to make sure that all of my payments that I have to pay, even my gardener, mm. I pay it through online banking. And this is the reason why I don't want to give every other company my checking account number but my own bank already knows my checking account number so at the beginning of the month Lloyd and I we pay our bills online banking we look at our online banking what like twice a week Lloyd isn't it we check it at least twice a week to make sure that nothing's going on and we pay everything on online banking and that way there's no mail going through there and I'm not using checks it, it's an excellent way to safeguard yourself. It really is. I, I, stra- I highly recommend it to, to our listeners. And they need to know that, that, and I have checks, Beth, from some of my clients that one of them says on the check, instead of saying like Beth Givens at the top with Beth Givens address in San Diego, mm-hmm. it says Mickey Mouse, Disneyland USA, <laughs> California, and then the check Actually, the bottom of the check says one bank, but it really is another bank. But but the account number and the checking account routing number are the number of my, my victim client. Huh. And so what happens is this. the When you write a check, 
All right. And let's say the grocery store and people who are listening to this, if you think, oh, I I write my check at the grocery store. Well, who has access to see that routing number and account number? Anybody. Mm -hmm. We had this lady on our radio show, Tammy Carroll, who was on Montel with me. And she told on Montel, and that's why I had her on, she told this story. She was a methamphetamine addict. She she and her gang would actually steal the, the post office box that's on the corner. Oh, and, honest to God, they'd go in the middle of the night because they were the up, blue box. Yeah, the blue box because they were on meth, and mm. they would throw it into the living room and they would knock it open and they would take the checks and she wouldn't even bother to acid wash the the name. She would just take the account number and routing number, go to Office Depot, pick up the software. She would then make up a name on the checks mm. and then write the checks to, to one of her friends and siphon the money out of the account using the account number and the routing number and it didn't even match the name of the bank and that's because they have readers there's just the little check readers and mm-hmm. that's how it's processed they do not look it could be monkeys pushing this through no one well, looks at this yeah that yeah that's that's a pretty sad case I, the movie with um oh the Oh, I should, shouldn't have brought it up because I can't remember what it is. <laughs> but, but Minority Report or what? No, not Minority Report. The one with uh, Matt Damon in it, uh, where he's he's a big fraudster. And he steals a, a typewriter. It's it's called Micr Encoding, M-I-C-R. Oh, right, right, right. M-I-C-R, right, exactly. Yes. And so he has the typewriter that is able to do the Micr Encoding. And in, in the movie, he does exactly that thing. By the way, it's a movie based on uh, true life stories of uh, Frank Ab- Abagnale. Oh, yeah, Abagnale. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's what they—that's what they do. It's so easy to do. So I don't understand, you know, at this point why we would use checks because it's so dangerous, and especially that's what these meth methamphetamine addicts do all the time. They—they they yeah. can just siphon. In fact, this Tammy Carroll, who was on the show, if anybody is listening and they want to listen to her, my interview with her, I did an hour with her. She told exactly how she did it. She then became, after she did her time in prison, she became uh, like an FBI informant. But um, anyway, she tells exactly how they did it. It's mm-hmm. just um, we were in shock <laughs> listening <laughs> to how easy it is. And then I've gotten so many of my own clients and, and victims who have called me that that's what happened. The money is siphoned out of their account. Even if they never did online banking, someone can set up online banking in your name if you don't use it, by the way. Mm-hmm. But I know that a lot of people don't like the idea of using online banking the way that, that you and and Lloyd use it, but this is what I do. I, I, I don't do online banking, although I imagine I'll get there one day, but I have online access. Right. And so a couple times a month, I just go and take a look at what's happening with my uh, credit and checking accounts. Yes. And I, I don't do the online banking, I, but I do have access online, and it's a great way to keep track of what's what's happening. It doesn't cost any extra. Exactly, because then you can see something, like if you see something that looks strange, Wait a minute! I didn't. I didn't siphon this money out of my account, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important that you you must look like what you do. And like I said, I feel safer not giving my account number to to San Diego Gas and Electric or to, you know, uh, the gas company or anybody else. Mm-hmm. I just don't really want to give that. To, yeah, to the newspaper. Why should I give? Well, the newspaper I give my credit card. And uh-huh. if, and if they're again getting back to the Fair Credit Billing Act, you're never going to be responsible for anything it, uh, that is fraudulent on your credit card as long as you look at it. Whereas in the debit card, that's the Electronic Funds Transfer Act. And basically, if you, if someone uses your PIN number online without a PIN, which they can do, 
You're not even covered by the Electronic Funds Transfer Act. Did you know that? Actually, no, I didn't. That's that's a, an interesting point. Yeah. So Pretty again, yeah. So you know that that number on your debit card can be used online or by phone, and the money's gone. And then you yeah. have to ask for it back. And then talk about how aggravating it is for you with your credit card when somebody who you forgot to tell, you know, then they give you a dirty letter or something. What about when you have all your money siphoned out of your account and your mortgage payment doesn't get paid and all yep. of your checks start bouncing? So that, yep. that that's a real problem as the well. The ramifications can be very, very serious. Uh, I know that there are some parents who, when their kids go off to college or even younger, will give them a debit card and put you know, X amount of dollars into the fund, and they'll say, now, this is a great way for you to learn budgeting skills. You have X amount of money, and I'm going to put, you know, 500 in each month, and it's your job to manage it, and here's a debit card. Um, if at all possible, it's better to give them a credit card. Exactly, exactly, because also they're, they're at college, and somebody else can see that number, and unfortunately we have college students doing it to each other too. We do. It's, it, it, is, it is true. Uh, roommate situations, um, you they have really access. don't. Yeah, they have access. Yeah, you really don't know who, who you might be rooming with. You know, Beth, I, I want to have it. We have not a lot of time, but I want to get into another issue, and that's something that's scary right now is medical privacy. We're finding out about all these digital databases. Tell us mm -hmm. what you're doing about medical privacy. Well, what's happening is something, two, two things are happening. First, um, the conversion of the traditional files, all those paper files, into electronic records. Um, a, a shortcut name for that is EHR, Electronic Health Record. Another thing is happening that is happening is then the regional, the development of regional systems where the medical records that you might have with uh, one, one health care institution uh, across town, another one, um, a specialty clinic uh, down the street, they're all uh, able to interact with each other and, and able to pull up uh, essentially a, a, a more complete record. There's both good and bad with all of that. Um, my pet peeve is the fact that we don't have universal health care insurance coverage, and uh, insurance companies are looking for reasons not to insure you, unfortunately. So that's kind of my beef, uh, one of the reasons why it's important to keep track of uh, your health records and, and uh, any way that you can. But um, the electronic health record, is, it's a mixed blessing. You know, it, it, it could very well it could improve the, the care that you receive a great deal, uh, especially if you're comatose, brought to an emergency room, and, and the doctors there could see from a number of, of healthcare institutions what's going on with you. On the other hand, we don't have universal health care coverage in this country, and our, our medical uh, privacy law that, that governs us is, is HIPAA, is not a very strong privacy law. In fact, it's really more of a disclosure law than a privacy law. So I am not real... Uh, I don't have a very good feeling about uh, privacy and medical records at this time. You know, it scares me. On one hand, like you were saying, there's the good, like if we had a terrible earthquake here, God forbid, or like they had Katrina. It would mm -hmm. be really nice if we had something in a central database of see if you were ill, somebody could look it up, and then they could treat you and know everything about you know about you so that they could treat you better. The problem that I see is what about the errors that might be in there that, that yeah. might affect you, like you said, not being able to get health insurance. And then if that database is shared with uh, maybe your bank and you might not be able to get a loan because of it. Do you know what I mean? Or what if you work for an employer that is self-insured? A lot of the large employers are self-insured. Uh, that information um, 
regarding your your healthcare claims could actually be processed right there in your own HR department. Exactly. And then what about you know who who else would have access to this? How are they limiting that, Beth? Is there something being done to limit all that kind of sharing? Well, there are projects going on. Um, the, it's, the RHIO, Regional Health Information Organization, is one that uh, is operating in our area, uh, that includes Orange County as well, where they're actually kind of a pilot project, uh, coming, basically trying to share all those records, but coming up with policies and procedures that would protect uh, the individual's privacy as much as possible. I think security is probably a bigger issue here. But, I, I, you know, we need to be, I think, in a situation where we actually have universal health care coverage. And, and I realize we're veering off course here into a very controversial uh, public policy issue. But as long as insurance companies are looking for information uh, and, and reasons to deny you coverage or to increase your, your premium, we're in, bad, we're in a bad uh, condition in this country. No, I agree with you, and and I think that there should be. It's it's totally outrageous what it costs to, for for Lloyd and I per month. It's it's you know unbelievable. Right. And we have a we have one of those HSAs, so we have very high deductible as well. Sure. And so yeah, it's very scary. And I think about all the people that don't have health insurance, and I agree with you. But right now, and and I don't know when we're going to get that, and I don't know if that's something in the near future. But right now, I think they're forging ahead. With this technology, I saw that Google is setting up things where you could set up your own account, yes. and they say that they're not going to share, and and they're not going to sell it. Um, well, but what happens if you are in uh, a legal fight with your insurance company? Couldn't that insurance company essentially um, subpoena? subpoena? Yeah, well, that's that's the thing. I mean, I don't know. Uh, because I don't know what the the actual contract with you says. If or what about law enforcement? Would they have a right to get it from your, you know, from your internet provider? I don't if know. They, if they had a court ordered warrant, I, sure. I would think so. Sure. Right. So I mean, how private would that really be? They say that this would be private, just for you to handle. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing is like, how do you get all those records? That's that's all. I mean, I know you have worksheets and fact sheets mm-hmm. on the privacy rights, how to get records. But I'm thinking someone who's as old as me, and you're not quite there yet, Beth. But <laughs> give me <laughs> but, a know, couple how, years. Yeah, <laughs> but how are we going to get all that? I mean, well, you, I, I honestly cannot make a list of all the healthcare providers I've had over time. Yeah. Uh, and if, of course, if you if you jumped around from a job to another job, you there may be several within a short period of time that you've had. So it's not easy to get it all together. Um, I recommend you know, there, there are these PHRs, personal health care records systems that are, uh, are provided online. And you're right, uh, Google has one, uh, uh, Microsoft has one. There are some, however, that you can just put on your own computer and keep within the confines of your own computer that are not in some giant uh, warehouse of, of an Internet system. I recommend, you know, if people want to develop a PHR, do it on their own computer and keep it in-house. Uh, don't use one of these systems that Microsoft or Google um, yes. puts out there. And, and encrypt it. <laughs> and encrypt it, absolutely. Well, Lloyd gives me the high sign that it's time to go. Beth, we could probably talk for hours. It Always, always uh, such a great, great opportunity to learn from you. And we thank you so much for joining us. And we will talk to you again soon. So just give your website so everybody can go there. Oh, sure. PrivacyRights.org. Um, and uh, you'll go to the fact sheet section and you'll see uh, hundreds and hundreds of tips on how to protect your privacy. It's and fabulous. Thank, thank you, Mari and Lloyd, as well. Okay. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Bye. 
You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Please visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy to see our upcoming guests and listen to archive interviews and download podcasts. Thank you. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.